everyone. Welcome to 2022 and the Stewart Observatory Public Evening Series. This series started in September of 1922. So we're coming up on 100 years. The building next door is over already over 100 years old. And we're coming up on the 100 years since the public evenings began. Uh, so we're very proud of that, that uh, here at Stewart Observatory, we give lectures to the public. We welcome our audience here on the campus of the University of Arizona, as well as our uh, patrons and friends who are watching us on Zoom at the moment. Uh, for those of you who are watching on Zoom, should you have questions at the end of tonight's lecture, just type them into the chat feature on Zoom, and I will read them to our lecturer. Uh, also, it's a clear night, so the 21-inch Raymond D. White telescope is open. Uh, right now, there are some students over there doing their assignments, but they finish by 8.30, and you're welcome to go over next door. Also, while uh, Mojan is talking, I'm going to run over and open up our ground floor museum. For those of you who may not have seen it yet, we're working on that. So uh, uh, you're welcome to go next door and look into the, uh, uh, through the telescope. Now, uh, you may have seen our website where we list the public evening lectures. We've got a full slate set for you this spring until the end of April. Basically, we'll have a lecture every other Monday. This is about the only lecture that doesn't have anything to do with James Webb Space Telescope. <laughs> All the rest of our lectures are, again, part of the team working on the James Webb Space Telescope. And as the uh, semester progresses, hopefully there's more information about James Webb Telescope that we'll get every two weeks. Because so, you know, they're the first ones to get information about how the telescope is doing. But we will have a special lecture sometime in April. I haven't been able to post it yet. It involves the Event Horizon Telescope and Sagittarius A star, the supermassive black hole in the center of the Milky Way galaxy. We're waiting for it to not be under embargo. Once the announcement is made to the world, we intend to have uh, Professor Demetrius, uh, Demetrios uh, Saltis here to tell us about their second great discovery. The, and the, so that's gonna be exciting. Just can't give you a date for it yet. So without further ado, and thank you all for wearing your masks. We really appreciate it. Uh, tonight's speaker is one of our postdoctoral fellows. Her name is Mojgan Agakhanlu. Mojgan is from Iran, and that is where she received her first science degree in physics. Her first physics degree is from a university in Tehran. She then received a PhD in physics from Florida State University. I can say Tallahassee, I know how to pronounce it. Uh, and then she received her PhD in the year 2020, and she came to Stewart Observatory right in the middle of our pandemic shut down. So it was, I know how frustrating it was. I didn't even meet her until uh, sometime last fall because, you know, we, we, we weren't meeting face to face back in the fall of 2020. But she works on massive stars. I like massive stars because they go boom. 
right? So without further ado, I will ask Dr. Aga Khanglu to speak on the mystery behind the outbursts of massive stars. Thank you very much. Oh, can you hear me well? Okay, awesome. Well, thank you very much for inviting me. I am very excited to be here. Uh, well, this lecture series started around 70 years ago before I was even born. So I'm really honored to be here. And today, I'm going to talk about massive stars and I'm going to talk about mystery behind their outbursts. I tried this before, okay, nice. So first I'm going to start and talk about actually what are massive stars. And then I'm going to explain that why are they so important to us? And then after that, I'm going to talk about the specific type of massive stars that they are unstable and they experience multiple outbursts during their lifetime. So let's start with why mass what are massive stars? Well, massive stars, they have much more material in them compared to our sun. They are at least eight times more massive than our sun. And today I'm going to even talk about stars that are around like 50 times more massive than our sun. And because of that, these stars, they are really bright. So for example, if you are talking about that is 50 times more massive than our sun, it's going to be a million times they burn their fuel a lot more faster. So that is why their lifetime is really short. So for example, here, we have the stellar mass versus their lifetime. A star like our sun, its lifetime is around 10 billion years. But if a star, let's say it's eight times or 10, 15 times more massive, its lifetime is dramatically shorter, it's around 10, million. So more massive star will have a shorter lifetime. So you may recognize that this picture is the image of Milky Way. Most probably if I ask you to imagine our galaxy, you're going to imagine a picture like this. There are billions of stars in this picture. And many of them you see that they are bright and blue. These are the massive stars that I'm talking about. But if we zoom into part of the sky, we will see that actually there are a lot of small dots that they are less massive stars like our sun or even less massive. And they are just handful of them that they are really bright. So they are young and massive. So if we look at different parts of the sky, we realize that massive stars, they are very rare. But interestingly, even though that they are very rare, they have much more influence in our universe and in our lives. Also, when we are looking at these areas, we realize that massive stars, they are usually in groups. You can rarely find a massive star that is alone. So now why are they so important to us? Well, here in the top row, you can see the evolutionary part of a star like our sun. And in the bottom row, you see the evolutionary path of a more massive star. The general idea is same. We start with a cloud of gas, cloud of hydrogen, and gravity will pull it together. So it will make it denser and denser, hotter and hotter. 
And when the temperature and pressure is high enough, we are going to have a hydrogen fusion. So hydrogen fusion will make a heavier element, helium. This is where we call it actually a star. That is why stars shine. And that is what it calls here main sequence. After a while, we are going to have a helium core and a hydrogen fusion layer. This is where we call it red giant or red supergiant. If a star is more massive, because it has more mass, it's going to have more gravity, more pressure. So gravity is an inward uh, force. So it's going to try to shrink the core. But then from fusion, we have an outward force, which will try to make the star bigger. When our sun is going to reach to this level of red supergiant, red giant, is going to be 100 times bigger than its size now. So it's going to even swallow Earth. After this, so after this, after that we have helium, so there is no uh, hydrogen left. Helium will start to make even heavier elements like carbon and oxygen. But there's not going to be enough energy, outward energy. So we are going to have inward gravity, but not enough outward energy to balance it. So start with a star, the star will start to collapse. So we are going to have a ball of carbon and oxygen, which we call it a white dwarf. This is the future of our sun. So in the center, we are going to have a white dwarf. And when the fusion in the outer layers are done too, we are going to have a nebula around it. And just because it looks like a planet, they call it the planetary nebula. So the story for massive stars that you can see in the bottom row is quite different. Massive stars, because they have much more material in them, they can fuse and make even heavier elements. So if we take a look at inside a massive star, we see that it looks like an onion, as you can see in the right bottom here. So we are going to have layers of heavy elements because we have chain of reactions. And during this chain of reactions, we have heavier and heavier elements. So we started with cloud of hydrogen, but now we have all the heavy elements up to iron and even we can say nickel in the periodic table. All are made inside a massive star. All this chain of reactions that is making heavy elements, they release energy. So that is why stars shine. But when we reach to iron, that is where iron needs actually energy to make heavier elements, which is not a purpose of a star. This is where this balance that we talked about gravity and fusion that you can see on the top left, we are not going to have enough fusion. So the inward gravity will start to make the core smaller and to shrink it. But electrons, they don't like to be at same place at the same time. We call this electron degeneracy. So they exert outward pressure for a while to stop the star to collapse. But after a while they give up, so the star will collapse. 
and it will make an enormous amount of energy, which we call it supernova explosion. For example, here you can see the Crab Nebula, which is a supernova remnant. This is how all these heavy elements that were formed inside a massive star will be released into our universe. And we couldn't exist without all these elements being formed inside a massive star. For example, here, orange is hydrogen, and then blue is oxygen, and green is sulfur. So what about other heavy elements, heavier than iron, that we see inside, that we have in the periodic table? Well, because the supernova explosion is very energetic, all the other heavy elements that are going to form during the supernova explosion. And after this, well, we have this supernova explosion, but inside we are going to have something called a neutron star. Because after the part that we talked about the electron degeneracy, electrons are going to be captured with protons. So we are going to have a ball of neutrons. So we call it a neutron star. Neutron stars, they are around same as our sun, sometimes twice, three times more massive, but in the size of a city. So they're super dense. And if, so this, what I explained, this happens to a star that is around nine times to 20 times more massive than sun. If a star is a lot more massive, then it's not going to even have a neutron star because even neutrons cannot hold the core and it will collapse. So we are going to have a black hole. But let's go back where we talked about a supernova, one step before that. Well, we talked about the pressure, the outward pressure from fusion and the inward from gravity. Sometimes for massive stars, this outward pressure overwhelms the gravity and makes the star unstable. That is why massive stars, they have a strong winds around like billion times denser than the solar wind. During their winds, they lose a lot of mass. So they can become even less massive stars. So when the gravity becomes weaker, they can even lose more mass. Here in this picture, you can see an unstable massive star, which is actually in our Milky Way. This a star called Ada Carr, and is one of the most brightest and luminous stars in our galaxy. Here, actually, you see the material ejected by this star. You don't see the star itself. You just see the nebula that is formed around it. Ada Carr, around 1800, started to flickering faster and faster and became the second brightest star in the sky and it stayed this way for around 20 years and during these 20 years it ejected a lot of gas and debris that it created a nebula around it that you saw in the previous uh, slide and here we can see its brightness versus the year you can see there is a huge peak that it got really bright so these uh, unstable stars that they experience multiple eruptions during their lifetime, we call them luminous blue variables. 
because they are very bright. Most of the time they're really hot, so they are blue. And we see that they show variation. So we see suddenly they get brighter. So we call them luminous blue variables or by their acronym LBVs. And you can see Ada card that we talked about here, and you can see another examples. You can see the nebula for this one. Well, for Ada car, we know that this star was around 100, 150 times more massive than sun. But for the rest of them, they're on average just 50 times more massive. And we talk that massive stars, they have a short lifetime, and also they are very rare. And they are in groups. They always, they are in groups of massive stars. So, for example, if you look at Ada Carr, sorry, this sometimes doesn't work. Okay. If we look at Ada Carr here in the right side, you can see Ada Carr at the center with a red uh, star. And the other circles, they are uh, massive stars around it. There is a clump of massive star, massive stars around Ada Carr, which is exactly what we expected. They should be close to each other in a group, in groups. However, for another unstable star called MWC930, you see that it's at the center and there's nothing, there's no massive stars around it. The massive stars that we are seeing here, they're really far. And we find that actually most of these unstable stars, they are alone, they are very far from other massive stars. So now the question is that, well, first of all, why are they alone? And whether this is related to what is causing their outbursts. So one of the mechanisms that is proposed that what is causing their outbursts is called pulsational pair instability. The idea is same as what I explained for a supernova explosion. So we have uh, layers of heavy elements and then the gravity will try to uh, shrink the core to collapse it. But then when the core will start to be denser and denser and hotter and hotter, the fusion can keep back. So the core will, can bounce. And then when the fusion again is done, the core will shrink. So it's going to be like a pulsation between bouncing back and shrinking. And then when it's bouncing back, we can lose at each bouncing back, we can lose some materials. Maybe that is what is happening. That is why we are having a, a couple of outbursts for these unstable stars. But then this theoretical idea, it doesn't really answer why these unstable stars are alone. Well, we're talking that when you're looking at their environment, we don't find massive stars and they are far away from massive stars. But what if with the current technology, we kind of zoom in and see what is happening really close by to them. Well, if we do that, we figure out that actually most of them, they are in binary systems. When I'm talking about binary systems, I mean two stars, they are orbiting each other and they're close enough so they're gravitationally bound and they're interacting with each other. 
here you can see two stars that they are, bound, they are orbiting each other. This is a specific video was made by NASA, and I guess for black holes, because one of the stars or bears is black, which is not a case here. I just use it to show that when I'm talking about binary stars, I mean two stars orbiting each other. So we know that around, hmm, sorry, I don't know how this really happened. Maybe I can clean it, sorry. Yeah, I think somebody annotated it. You could just clear it, yeah. So we know that around at least 70 percentage of massive stars, they are either in a binary systems or they were at some point during their lifetime. And even there are recent works showing that almost all of them at some point they were or they are in a binary systems. So we know that binarity actually dominates their evolution. So it's really important that we consider if they have a companion, if there is a star orbiting on a stable star, how is it affecting this evolution? Is it why these stars are alone? Is it why they are experiencing multiple outbursts? We cannot really ignore this. So, Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I'm not sure why it's not working. Sorry. Yeah, my cursor also is not, okay. Okay. Sorry. So let's assume two stars. One of them is around 20 times more massive than our sun. The other one is around 15. And they're orbiting each other. As we talk, because of the outward pressure, one of them is going to evolve and it's going to become bigger that you're going to see in a couple of seconds. And the other one will start to pull material from the big one. This one that is pulling material is our unstable star is going to pull a lot of material that actually the big star is going to lose a lot of mass and is going to slowly shrink. So it's going to be smaller and smaller. So the core again is going to be hotter and hotter. The pressure is going to go up. So we are going to have a supernova explosion that you are going to see in a sec second, a couple of seconds. So this one that now is big is our unstable LBV. So when this happens, first of all, our, our unstable star gained a lot of mass from that companion. So it's more massive. Second of all, because this companion exploded as a supernova, it may receive a high velocity, kind of getting kicked out of its group. So maybe that is why these unstable stars, some of them, they are alone. Maybe their companions exploded, so they got kicked out of their group. This is what we call it mass gainer with a kick, because they gain mass and they receive a significant kick. But now, what about if these two stars are really close to each other? So they merge and they form 
one star. Well, then there's no extra velocity. So how is that they are alone? Well, in this case, we talked that if a star is more massive, its lifetime is shorter. So if initially we have two stars that are 20 times more massive than our sun, if they merge and they form a star, which is 40 times more massive, we expect that this 40 times massive star is going to have a shorter lifetime because it's more massive, it should have a shorter lifetime. But actually, this is not how it works. When the stars, they merge, they stick to their kind of internal clock. So we are going to see a massive star, but internally is going to act like what it was originally, which was a 20 solar mass star. So when we have these mergers, all the massive stars around them, because they have short lifetimes, they're going to die. But the merger one, because inside is a less massive star, is going to stick around. So when we observe them, we don't see any massive stars. We are not going to see any massive stars around them because they're already dead. So we have two scenarios. So first of all, we talked that, well, observationally, we know that these unstable stars, they are far away from massive stars, which it doesn't make sense because the lifetime is really short. And then we know that, well, most of them, they're in binary systems. So either maybe they merge with their companion or they receive the kick. Now the question is that, is there a way to theoretically show this? Well, we talk that they are just a handful of them because they're really rare. There are around like 25 of them in our galaxy. And in nearby galaxies, which you can see here, uh, large and small Magellanic clouds, they are dwarf galaxies that they're orbiting our uh, Milky Way. There are around 16 of them. So we selected these LBVs and we developed a theoretical model to see whether it makes sense that because they are far because of the binary scenarios that we talked about. Here we have separation. Separation, it means that if we have one unstable star, how far away is the closest massive star that we can find? This is what we mean by separation. Versus the lifetime. And then we have a brown line this one is not working too. <laughs> it's okay. We have a brown line, which is the average. Thank you. Oh, awesome. Oh, it's, it's gone. Oh, okay. Thank you. <laughs> okay, awesome. Okay, awesome. So we have separation versus lifetime. The brown line that we have here is on average how far away all these unstable stars are from the closest massive star that we can find. And then the orange curve is our theoretical model, which is showing that a massive star, which path it should follow based on its mass and age. I showed you a plot at the beginning of the talk that what is the relationship between a mass and the age of a star. Is it working? It's a little bit better. Okay. Do that or even. Okay, thank you. Thank you. 
you can see that relationship from the top axis to the bottom. For example, you see at 10, if a star is lifetime is around 10 million years, how massive it should be. It should be around 20 times more massive than our sun. So we know that these unstable stars, they are around 50 times more massive than our sun. That means that the lifetime is around 5 million years. But if we put it that how far away they are on average, we see that they need around 9 million years to reach to how far away they are. This means that these stars, instead of being 50 times more massive, they, are, they should be less massive stars around 20 which is theoretically showing that they should be mergers. But what about the other scenario that we talked, that, that maybe their companion explodes, so they receive a kick? Well, in this case, yeah, this is when they are mergers. In this case, theoretically, we have velocity versus the lifetime. The black line shows how fast a group of massive stars move. On average, they move with a velocity less than 20 kilometers per second. And the blue curve shows how fast these unstable stars should be based on their mass. So in the left side here is where the lifetime is really short, it's around three or less. So because the lifetime is short, they're really massive. In this case, they need around 100, 120 kilometer per second velocity to be able to go that far from their group. We know that massive stars, they just move with a velocity less than 20. So this extra velocity that is here, it can just come from a supernova explosion. But on the other hand, if they are, their lifetime is shorter, around 9 million years, this means that they have a longer lifetime, so they should be less massive stars. And in this case, they don't need any extra velocity to reach to the observed large separations. And this is where they are mergers. So we are talking that, okay, maybe these stars are alone. One, because maybe they are not that massive that they look like, or they have, they received a high velocity. So is there a way that we measure their masses more accurately to see that maybe they are less massive? And also, is there a way to measure their velocities to see that, yeah, maybe they have a higher velocities in comparison to other normal massive stars? Well, we did both of them. For mass, to understand that how we can more accurately measure stars' mass, we have to see, we have to first talk about how actually we measure the stars' mass. Well, there are multiple ways. One way is that if stars, they're in a binary system, if you know how far away they are from each other, you know the period, you can figure out how massive that system is. So if in from different methods, we figure out how massive stars are and how luminous they are, 
we can put them together and we can fit a line kind of a function to this pattern. And we can see that there is a relationship between how luminous the star is and how massive it is. So if we don't know how massive the star is, if we figure out how luminous it is, we can figure out how massive it is. When I talk about luminosity, I mean the amount of energy that a star releases per second. That is not easy to measure. What is easy to measure is the amount of energy that is reaches to us. That is apparent brightness. And we know that, for example, if a star is further away, it's dimmer, if it's closer, it's brighter. So that is why we have a distance here. So we are seeing that to measure accurately how massive stars are, specifically these unstable ones, we have to first accurately measure how far away they are. Well, can we do that? Yes. With the help of Gaia space mission, we can figure out more accurately than before how far away these unstable stars are. Gaia space mission was launched around 2013 that you can see is launched here. And you can see where it is respect to Earth and Sun. They released the first data in around 2016. And then in 2020, they released the third early data release. And this year, they're going to release the full third data release. Gaia measures position and motion of stars. So with the help of Gaia, we can figure out how far away these stars are. Here you can see Gaia, which is going through and scanning two parts of the sky at the same time. So using the Gaia data, we find the distances to these unstable stars. So here you can see the Gaia distances, and you can see here in the x-axis, the previous distances in the literature. And the dashed line is a one-to-one -one relationship. So we see that around half of them, they are below this dashed line. So it means that they are closer than what previously estimated. So if we go back to the formulas that we had, if these stars are closer, it means that their distances are shorter. So they are less luminous. And because they're less luminous, they're less massive. And we found that we're on half of them. They're a lot less massive, which is exactly showing that there should be product of mergers. So now, what about the velocities? And also, sorry, before going to that, I have to mention that this work is done for the unstable stars, massive stars that they are inside our galaxy. Because Gaia for these specific stars is just good for the ones that they're inside the, our galaxy. It's not still good for the ones that they're in the other galaxies. So now what about uh, their velocities? Well, we measured velocity of the ones that they are in the large Magellanic cloud. And we found that around half of them, they're moving really fast. So we talked that on average, massive stars, they move with a velocity less than 20 kilometers per second. So anything above that, we consider it fast. In blue, we have our unstable LBVs. You see this one that is moving around 150 kilometers per second. 
compared to his environment. We call these kind of stars runaway stars because they're running away from their origin. They receive the kick, that is why they're alone. Around other half of them, they have velocities above 30, which is still high. It's not as high as 100, 150 kilometers per second. So we call it walkaway stars, but still is high enough, which is, comes from their supernova explosion, the kick from their companion. So that's why they are far away. And the red is the red supergiants. It's for red supergiants because the fraction of binaries in the red supergiants are low. We use red supergiants as an example to show that um, how fast massive stars they move. So we have, so we know that they are alone. Then we theoretically show that, okay, maybe they are mergers and maybe they receive the kick from their companion. And now with combining the theory and observations, we are showing that yes, well, half of them in our galaxy, they have lower masses. And then in the nearby galaxies, they half of them, they have high velocities. So this means that this population of unstable massive stars called LBVs, actually they're a mix of these two. So some of them, they are mergers and some of them, they are mass gainers and they receive a kick. So before going to that, sorry. Okay, so now the question is that, okay, well, we know that these stars are alone because of the effect from their, uh, from their binary companion. So is there a way that we can figure out, is the binarity also affecting their outbursts? Is it the reason that why they are experiencing these outbursts during their short lifetime? Well, all these research that I talked today, it just happened in past six, seven years. So there are a lot of ongoing research trying to answer how binarity, how having a companion can answer that how the, these outbursts are happening. For example, if there are two stars close to each other, maybe their winds collide, or maybe one of them triggers the other one, especially in the outer layers. So that is why we have multiple outbursts. Or when they merge, some chemical mixing happens. So that is why they are, uh, they are experiencing these outbursts. So this is an ongoing work, but for Ada Carr that we talked, actually, they recently find that it wasn't a triplet system. So there are two massive stars here, the most massive ones. One of them, like what we saw at the first one, is going to evolve. So the other one is going to suck a lot of material. So it's going to make a disk around it. And this one, the second one is going to and have a, like a, uh, how to say, they are going to, it's going to be bound to the other star. Let me play it again. So, yeah. So this third one is just going around. And then after that, this second one that is going to get smaller and smaller, when it's going to leave and go and interact with the third one, 
The third one is going to come and kind of smash and merge with the primary star. So that is why we have an outburst. And then you are going to see that the third one is coming back. So it's orbiting. So this uh, proposed idea can be true for many of these LBVs, but it can be just true for the ones that they are really massive, like Ada Carr. Ada Carr uh, is around like 100, 150 times more massive than our sun. So the outburst that we saw, it was so energetic. So this can explain these kind of outbursts that actually we call them giant eruptions. However, many of the other unstable stars, they experience less energetic outbursts. They are still really energetic, but not this much energetic because they are not 100, 150 times more massive. They're just 50 times more massive. So most probably the other mechanism that I talk, it should be a reason why they experience rather than being in a triplet system. So we showed that, well, these unstable LBVs, they are very far from other massive stars. And then we showed that for the ones that they are in our own galaxy with the help of Gaia, around half of them, they are closer than what previously estimated, which means that they are less luminous stars, they are less massive. So most probably they were product of mergers. That is why they are alone. And for the unstable LBVs that they are in the nearby irregular galaxies, we find that around 40% of them, they have really high velocities compared to other massive stars. This means that they are alone because they received a kick from their companion's supernova explosion. So observationally and theoretically, we know how binarity is important and plays a really important role in these stars and actually in all massive stars evolution. And most probably, as we saw in the case of Ada Carr, it should be the main factor that why they are experiencing multiple outbursts during their lifetime too. And with that, I will conclude. Thank you. Thank you so much, Mojgan. And we do have time for questions. I'm just gonna bring up the chat screen here on Zoom. Come on, there we go. Okay, there are, uh, all right, so no questions yet, but we'll let the audience at home take a moment or two to type in their questions. You have a question here? I will bring the microphone to you. Okay. <laughs> Professor, I have a question on, on two parts. When you talked about the two massive binary merger and gain mass in a kick, by definition, the, um, the, the, angular, the uh, angular momentum of two body systems, as you know, by terms of definition, it can be described as a, the relative velocity and the reduced mass of the system. Why doesn't that behavior reflect upon uh, regular stars like Alpha Centauri, which is a binary star system? Is it because of the mass of their? Yes, so these ones are a lot more massive. And that is why. There's a reason why. Yeah. Thank you. 
uh, question here, and then I'll go over there. Um, you mentioned uh, determining that some of these stars have or had um, a binary partner. How do you really determine if a star once upon a time had a, so, a companion? So when I say they had, I refer to the mergers because when we are seeing a single star without a companion, so we say, well, it's not in a binary system. But when we compare that star's mass with the surrounding and we figure out that this star is really less massive than what it looks like, it means that it merged with another star. So it was, it had a binary companion. Question here. Uh, what uh, your information that seems so relevant, I noticed you lot, use a lot of Hubble information. Did Has it really expanded uh, greatly as a result of discoveries made from Hubble? Yes, uh, the picture that we saw for the Ada car that you saw the nebula, it actually is captured by Hubble. And that was the first moment, actually, one of the first uh, images that we had for Ada car. So we, can, we could really understand what is happening. Also, Hubble is really important for massive stars because of its UV, that we can observe these massive stars in UV. So we can really understand and well, for example, one of the things uh, we really like to do is that we use Hubble and we go and figure out how massive stars are around these unstable stars. And then we compare it to the masses that we have. If we figure out with the Hubble that all these massive, all the stars around them, they're really old, then it means that they are mergers. Question here. Thank you. Yeah, so you mentioned that the LBVs have a, a another star in the binary star system and they siphon off material from their other star and yet they even with the greater mass they behave more like a star with the original mass in terms of its aging process how does that work that it can have the same mass even if it was acquired later on and the mass itself does not drive the aging process of the star well you mean that when they merge why do they act like a lower mass star it that acts, lower yes planet? i thought you oh, said okay. it was acting like one in terms of its yeah, aging yeah. and its luminous yeah. luminosity so the thing is that when two stars they merge uh well this is the ongoing work too so we think that the idea is that the core will stay the same so that is why how massive the star was originally is going to act the same so it's going to have the same amount of fusion and is going to like stay longer if it's a less massive stars. So when they merge, it's kind of like the outer parts, not the core that is, was a less massive star. Okay, we do have a question here from uh, the Zoom audience. The question is, early on, you said merged binaries maintained the property, like lifetime, of one of them. Are these partial mergers? No, 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 they're not partial mergers. So let's assume that we have two stars, they merge and they make just one star. Okay. But my point was, is that when we are seeing a really massive star, and if it's a merger, then that star is not going to die that fast. Mm -hmm. It's going to have longer time because internally is a less massive star. In a sense, the cores maybe haven't completely merged yet. Yes. And so the conditions for nuclear fusion is the same as are the same as they were before they merged. Yes, exactly. Okay. I actually have a question and it was about the runaway stars. Okay. If, if presumably 
they have such high velocities because they were given a kick by a companion that went supernova. That means that the photosphere of that star should have been showered with all the heavy elements that were created in that supernova explosion. Uh, do you see in the spectra of these runaway stars uh, spectral lines of such heavy elements? Yes, we see the heavy elements, but it's a little bit complicated because these stars, sometimes because of their variation, they get big. So they make something called pseudo photosphere. So for these stars, really defining a photosphere is really hard. Ah. Yeah, that is why that we, it's hard to say, is it coming from the photosphere? Is it coming from a pseudo photosphere? Uh, or is it like inside the star? That boundary is really- Yeah, hard. well, I also noticed in your animation, the first one, it's almost like there was this cloud around yes. the star as almost as if it was maybe uh, a wind or something or something that was outside yes, it, the it, photosphere that, of the star. That part in the video, it was like a disc. So all the materials okay, the, were going around it like a disc. Okay, do we have any other questions? Okay, if not, I want to remind you that our next lecture is two weeks from today, and I have already forgotten who the lecturer is. Oh my gosh. Um, wait, let me just quickly, I should have done this just so I can tell. I know it's gonna be about James Webb Space Telescope. Um, Come on. The telescope, I can do two things at once. The telescope is open for your viewing if you have never visited the telescope before. It's the white building next door. You go in the ground floor, the door is open. On the ground floor, if you haven't visited the original lobby of the old Stewart Observatory, I have the lights on. We have a mock-up of Professor Douglas's office. We have displays of uh, antique equipment that was used at the observatory, as well as a couple of old grandfather clocks that I still haven't gotten working yet, but they're beautiful. And uh, go up two flights of stairs, 21-inch telescope, and we have two wonderful undergraduate telescope operators who will tell you what you're looking at. And if you want to see something and it's up in the sky, they'll point the telescope. Our next lecture is on February the 7th. It will be Dr. Thomas Beattie, who works at Stewart Observatory. And the title of the talk is Looking Forward to JWST, The Nature of Exoplanets. So he'll be talking about extrasolar planets that they hope to study with the James Webb Space Telescope. February 7th, two weeks from tonight, 7.30. With that, thank you for coming out this evening. Have a safe trip home, and let's thank Dr. Aghanhalu one more time. Thank you very much. Thank you.